0: Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's epistle written to the Galatians, where we will be looking together at the closing verses of that second chapter, verses 11 through 21. Galatians two eleven through 21, you can find that passage on page 1142 in your pew Bibles. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about these false apostles in Galatia and their wicked attempts to discredit the apostle Paul and his teaching and perhaps even more importantly to them, to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul so clearly preached. And they did it by telling the people in the church in Galatia that Paul was not all he was cracked up to be. Paul was not only preaching not the entire gospel, but that he was somehow at odds with the real apostles in Jerusalem. And of course, these men were putting that forward, that the real apostles, the true apostles, the genuine apostles were, of course, the ones who carried all of the actual apostolic authority. And again, we saw that the Apostle Paul wanted to make very certain that the Galatians knew the truth. He did not become irate. He did not simply begin defending himself by slinging mud at these men, these false teachers. He immediately appealed directly to the truth. He began to work to promote, to preserve, and to reiterate the truth. The truth was not only that Paul was in perfect agreement with the apostles in Jerusalem, but that when he went to them and he presented to them the very gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles, they not only accepted it, they extended to Paul and Barnabas with him the right hand of fellowship. They together acknowledged Paul as God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles, even as Peter was the apostle to the Jewish believers. Paul successfully beats back these false accusations of these false teachers in the church by directly appealing to the truth. The apostles were aware of everything that Paul had been teaching. And they wholeheartedly agreed with his message that man, sinful man, was justified before a perfectly holy God only by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone, apart from the works of the law. The pillars of the church that the false apostles were bringing up to the people were in absolute agreement with Paul. And Paul says here in this second chapter that upon hearing him give an account of the gospel, they added nothing to his message except to say that they truly desired that Paul and Barnabas remembered the poor. Paul said that was the very thing that he wanted to do. Compassion for others being one of those glorious fruits of the Holy Spirit given through the embracing of the truth by the gospel. The embracing of the truth of the gospel by faith. And so Paul, merely pointing to the truth, has shown that these false teachers were in fact liars. They were not for God. They were the enemies of God and the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they had been allowed to creep into the church in order to lead the people of God astray. We've seen Paul take these men to task and if that was And if all that we did was just look together at the very first half of this chapter, we could probably say that the Apostle Paul had said enough to warn against listening to the lies coming from the mouths of these men. He has already succeeded in discrediting them using nothing but the truth. Their stories did not line up with the facts. We can probably see where the Galatians would would have to see that they had been lied to by these men. However, as we read on in chapter 2, we see that Paul was not content to let things simply lie there. He knows how quickly these people, people whom he loved, people who had been entrusted to his care, had been led astray. And he's bothered by it. Someone had come in through deceit and caused these beloved members of the church of Jesus Christ to embrace a version of the gospel that was in fact no gospel at all. Someone had convinced them that the radical and liberating message of the gospel of Jesus Christ could easily be replaced with a slightly better gospel. And all it took was the addition of a lighter version of the law working together with the gospel, man working in a synergistic relationship with Almighty God in order to gain the salvation of one's soul. The works of the law gaining for one their only comfort in life and in death. And that damage seemed to have come in far too easily. So Paul's going to make certain that everyone who reads or hears this letter understands exactly how crucial the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is. Our justification before a holy God is everything. It's central to the message of the gospel. And Paul knows that if we do not get this right, we not only do real and lasting damage to the message of hope itself, but we rob God of the glory in our salvation, taking that glory for ourselves, pinning our justification in any way to our own adherence, of, adherence to the law and making the death of Jesus Christ to be of no effect. It is something that we could do in it. If it is something that we could do in and of ourselves, beloved, then we have to say that Jesus Christ in fact died in vain. Have you ever thought about that? That's the point Paul is making here. It is serious business. And so the Apostle Paul holds absolutely nothing back as he seeks to get the message through loud and clear one more time and now that he has the attention of the Galatians and he has shown his own right standing with with and his relationship to the apostles in Jerusalem Paul goes on and he speaks to the fact that even they even some of what were called the pillars of the church had to be corrected by him corrected in their understanding of the gospel, corrected in their living out of the gospel by faith. These men whom the false teachers had appealed to as a means of discrediting Paul, not only accepted Paul in his message, they not only received him, they not only extended to him the right hand of fellowship, some of them were rebuked by the apostle Paul as well. And it was done publicly so that this precious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be upheld by the church in all of its glory. Paul holds nothing back as he willingly goes to war over the purity of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I hope that his tenacity in this fight and the reasons standing behind it are at the very front of all of our minds as we listen to this argument again. And it's with all that in mind, I'd ask that you follow along. As I read now, Galatians chapter two, again, starting with verse 11, reading through verse 21. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and holy word of our Lord. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, Live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all of those things that distract us in this life. May we give our full attention to the rich, wonderful truth of your word, so that hearing it through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues making his point here by doing something that seems at least on the surface to fly in the face of what we have all been led to believe is the way in which we in the church are to approach disagreements with those whom we happen to disagree with. We've been led to believe that the proper response to any disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ is to first and foremost make sure that above all, no one could possibly become injured in any way. Injured by what we say. Injured by judgments we make. In other words, we are to be tolerant of all of the varying views of others and never let our disagreements regress to the point where we would speak ill of one another's motives. Or even worse, go so far as to pass judgment on one another. Good civilized Christian folks ought not do such dreadful things ever, even when the truth is at stake. Well, beloved, please understand at the outset this morning, I am not in any way promoting uncharitable behavior among believers. I would like to believe that if you've listened to me for any amount of time, that you know quite the opposite is true. I'm usually promoting charity However, there are times when the most charitable thing that you or I could do is correct the one whom we love in love. I'm not talking about being hypercritical, I'm talking about pulling someone in error off the path that leads to destruction. I'm talking about promoting and preserving the truth. There are those in the church in our time that have almost come to the point where they really do not believe in any absolute truth. And so they feel it's always best to just grin and bear it. It's always best to just remain silent and to keep things like objections to themselves. After all, we don't want to appear unloving. That would do damage to our image as the bride of Christ, wouldn't it? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I can think of nothing more unloving for the body of Jesus Christ than to just ignore blatant error when we hear it, especially when it pertains to the very message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that really is the only balm to heal what truly ails us. We cannot allow for this critical message, this desperately needed message, to become clouded or hazy in error, to be obscured from those who so desperately need to hear it. And so here we find the Apostle Paul, motivated by his love for the gospel, motivated by his love for the church, breaking this unwritten rule of civilized tolerance, even going so far as to name names publicly. Look at what he says in verse 11. He doesn't say now there was an apostle that came to Antioch. He doesn't say one of the 12 came to Antioch. You don't need to know who. It was one of the 12, trust me, being civilized. What does he say? Now, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Why? 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 Because Paul needed to discredit Peter? Paul needed to be regarded as higher than Peter in the pecking order of the apostles? No, Paul tells you why. Because he was to be blamed. In other words, Paul had to stand up to Peter's face and he had to call him out Because of what he was doing in front of the church of Jesus Christ. You understand? And notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't mince any words here. He's not like the false apostles had done with him, speaking in generic or thinly veiled terms. He's not speaking of something that he would never say in Peter's presence. This is not Paul trying to speak behind Peter's back in order to discredit him. He says, I withstood him to his face. I took my complaint directly to whom it was against. Beloved, if you're like me, you probably feel the sting of that right how often we ignore the clear teaching of scripture when it comes to dealing with what we would consider to be error paul is not now diving into the abyss of gossip that we all fall so, pray to so easily here on this side of glory this is not gossip this is not slander It's historical record for a purpose. And I trust you see the difference between the two. And Paul takes a dig at the false apostles here. The false apostles who knew that in the actual presence of Paul, they had no real charges to bring that he could not withstand. And so they waited for Paul to leave before they crept into the church and began their onslaught of lies against his character. They were not able to oppose him to his face because their whole argument was based on half-truths and outright lies. But Paul reaffirms his argument by saying that he was so sure that he was right about the gospel, and as proof of that, he opposed one of the so-called pillars of the church to his face in order to preserve the purity of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel he himself had been called to preach. And beloved, I want for us to feel the weight of what Paul is doing here. He's not trying to bring Peter down in order to raise his own fame and glory. Paul is showing you the significance, the absolute critical importance of getting the gospel right. He will not stand. He will not only stand against false apostles to protect the integrity of the gospel. Paul will in fact stand up against anyone who seeks to discredit him. Peter, the other apostles. Even an angel from heaven does not get a pass when they present something that is less than salvation completely and entirely in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ embraced by faith alone. Paul does not have to shoot from the shadows. He does not have to tiptoe carefully around his rebuke of Peter on this subject. He has the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ On his side. And he approaches Peter in the light. In the full view of the church. Why did he have to do it? What could have upset Paul so much that he had to withstand Peter of all the apostles to his face publicly? This is the one who walked on the water to his Lord, the one who was there, who had actually witnessed his trial and his execution. This is the one who outran everyone else to the tomb, or who at least ran to the tomb. This is the one who preached that famous sermon at Pentecost. He was an eyewitness to the ascension of our Lord to the right hand of the Father in glory. Why? Why? What could warrant a public rebuke for a man like Peter? Well, look at verses 12 and 13. Paul tells you, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. He hung out with the Gentiles. He was like one of the Gentiles. But when these men came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And Paul says, no way. The Christian life, and hear me, beloved, the Christian life is not a stage. You are not play actors in the drama of redemption if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not one thing before one group while being something else entirely before another. You will not promote Christ to one while discrediting him to another. And you can imagine with his own history how that rebuke had to sting Peter. The one who quickly denied in the face of accusation, even knowing the Lord. Peter had played the hypocrite. And his doing so was playing fast and loose with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, we know, understands that it is faith in Christ that will justify a man before God, not the works of the law. Peter is a pillar of the church. He is the one, you remember, that Jesus Christ called the rock and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Same guy. His very name is thrown around by the false apostles as lending significant weight to anything that had been said. This is Peter. A witness of the transfiguration. A participant in the miracles of Jesus Christ. The same Peter that Jesus asked three times to show his love for him by feeding his sheep. But when it comes to the message of the gospel being compromised... By even the misplaced fear of men, Paul says, Who is Peter? Who is Paul? Who is even an angel from heaven? Let no one compromise the message of hope that is ours in Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. Beloved, I can't say it enough, if we get this message wrong, we are in the darkness. Do you understand? Paul shows very clearly here, there is no creature that should not be fully resisted if they would dare to add anything at all to the message of the gospel. He says even Barnabas had been led astray. Barnabas the partner of Paul in his journeys, even Barnabas had decided to play the hypocrite. Had become content to play act when it came to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why? Was it because these men were confused over that whole area of what it is that will justify a sinner before a holy God? Was it simply ignorance on their part? Well, of course not. They knew full well what the truth was and they proved it by their actions. However, they had an unhealthy fear that stood behind their actions. One that I trust you and I this morning probably can sympathize with. They feared men. They feared people. They feared the supposedly righteous ones. And worse, They allowed for the fear of man to blind their eyes to the importance of standing up against any other doctrine. You can almost hear the refrain from Paul, right? In his letter to the Romans. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you relate this morning? Why do you think it's so common? For the church to remain silent today, never speaking out against the many other more popular versions of the gospel, even within the church. Fear. Considering what scripture clearly reveals to us about both man and God, I want to tell you this morning, beloved, it is an illogical and irrational fear, like most sin. But it's also a reality of this flesh that we wear, isn't it? The fear of man over and above the fear of God who will judge all men, who created everything. We, re- we fear the reaction of those around us. We fear the accusations that say that we have become arrogant, that we think we have a corner on knowledge. We fear the very real possibility that if we speak up too loudly or too often, we will be labeled as the self-righteous troublemakers people might not like us very much. And we let that irrational fear cloud even our perception of the truth, which is that we should fear God and God alone. The message of the gospel is being attacked. We should fear our unwillingness to do anything about it. To stand up against it. Beloved, What are we without this message? You have to see that that's what's going on here. Paul is not accusing Peter of malice or ignorance, but of weakness of flesh, which leads him to hypocrisy. Paul points to his actions as being the very thing that condemns him. He says in verse 14, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, If you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter, you understand, was living joyfully, freely, lovingly with the Gentiles. He was eating with them. He was drinking with them. He was teaching that it was faith alone that would save them. But when the Jews showed up, he feared them more than he feared God, and so he separated himself from them and threw these poor people into confusion as to which way was the right way. Should the Gentiles live by the laws of the Jews and by by faith in Christ in order to be justified? Peter was a leader, and the rest of the Jews that were there immediately followed suit with him. And Paul says the very fact that before these men showed up, you were acting as a Gentile, eating and drinking and living as a Gentile shows what you really believe. Paul expounds on what that is. Look, look at verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, understand what he's saying, Jew or Gentile, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Do you believe that? Your flesh will not be justified by the works of the law. Paul says to him, Peter, if we who have been born and bred in the Jewish religion and not of the impure Gentiles, if we know that it's faith in Jesus Christ alone that justifies a man before God, if we know that, and we know it's not the works of the law, why would we ever hold ourselves or anyone else back by returning to the law? We know that it's faith in Jesus Christ and him alone that justifies. We know that it is his righteousness that covers us and not our own. And we have seen that no man, no flesh will ever be justified by the law. It is wrong for us as Jews to return to the notion that we are justified by the law. How is it that we would ever lead others in that very direction? He adds weight to his argument in verse 17. He says, "If we, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Paul's making the point that if while seeking to be justified by Christ, they are then found to be sinners in the eyes of the law, for acting as the Gentiles, for acting like the Gentiles act, would it not also then follow that Jesus Christ led them into sin by giving them the liberty to do that which the law condemned. And Paul says that emphatic negative that we saw so often in Romans, certainly not, may it never be, don't even suggest such a thing. How could we ever entertain this view of Christ that he would free us from the bondage of the law only to lead us back to it in order to be condemned in our glorious freedom. How could we who are free from the law ever go back and worse, ever willingly lead others to do the same because it looks better? Paul continues to shape his whole argument. He says in verses 18 and 19, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. You understand what he's saying, but beloved he's being very straightforward. Paul is saying that if he or any other for that matter taught that it is faith alone that justifies and that our so-called perfect Observance of the law is not necessary indeed is not able to justify a man before God if he should now by word and deed return to the law as a means of justification as a means of gaining life then he himself would be condemned but he says through the law he did not come to life but what he died Through the law, he did not come to life, but he died. The law showed him he was in fact a dead man in his sins and trespasses. And he died to the law so that he might live to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the beautiful way he puts it. He says, I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you understand that term, in vain, what we're saying, what Paul is saying? We, that is you and I, have been crucified with Christ. In the life that we now live by faith, we live by faith in the Son of God. Through the law, we see that we are dead. We are sinful. We are found wanting in the eyes of the holy law of God. But by faith in the Son of God, we find grace and peace and life in Him. We are united to Him by faith, united to His life, His death, His resurrection. And in Him, we have been reconciled. We have peace. Beloved, do you understand what we've been given? In Jesus Christ this morning. Though we deserve death, we deserve justice, we deserve judgment because of our inability and our sinful natures to keep the holy law of God. We have been given life through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, we've been united with Him. United with his life, death, and resurrection, we live now in him. We are, as Paul said, now seated with him in heavenly places. If we seek to be justified in any other way than by faith in Jesus Christ alone, because of the grace of Almighty God alone, then I want to tell you this morning, we are interested in another gospel altogether. And it is a gospel that is not a gospel. It is a gospel that does serious damage to our perception of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. If you're still considering this argument to be someone else's fight. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that we really are making too big of a deal of this whole thing then I want these final words of Paul to be ringing in your ears as you leave this place this morning. Paul says, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ came in vain. If you and I can somehow achieve righteousness before Almighty God based on the things that we do or don't do, then the Lord Jesus Christ, understand what we're saying, The Lord Jesus Christ wasted his time dying for us. He died in vain. That's what Paul is saying. He died and his death was unnecessary, if that is true. Do you really believe that everyone is entitled to their own way of seeing things when it comes to the gospel? Is this really a situation where you and I are not called to make judgments? Do you really believe that it's okay for us to sit back and say nothing? Or should we like Paul stand up and say, forget my reputation. Forget my pride. Forget the acceptance of men. Forget about my level of physical comfort in this life. Forget about who you are in the eyes of this world if you dare to step on this message in any way, shape, or form, if you dare to rob my God of the glory of my salvation or anyone else's in this life, then know that I will stand up and fight. Will you like Paul see the gospel message as that thing that simply cannot be compromised by anyone for any reason? Because beloved, I wanna be honest with you this morning. Our joyful freedom in Jesus Christ is at stake. Our only barrier to false religion, self-help, and any other nonsense that our flesh will and does dream up on a daily basis is the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And this area of our justification is at the very heart of this. We desperately need the perfection of Jesus Christ. We can't let people make us believe that that we can add to His perfection. Add what? What do we have to add? The law is placed before us and all we see is sin and shame. We need the righteousness of Jesus to be our own or we have no righteousness. And if we have it, And truly, we have everything. We have everything we could ever want or desire. We have everything we could ever need to be reconciled to God and fully expect to spend eternity in his presence. Are you really going to make Christianity about something less than that? If you do, shame on you. I pray that we would see the truth of the gospel as something we cannot afford to compromise on. That we would spend our time and our energy and our ability to fight on that. Because all else pales in comparison to that. Amen.